All right, we are fully blessed to have Brother Matt Steele with a split sermon today entitled, The Wedding Day. Mr. Matt Steele. Good afternoon. What a beautiful bunch of people. It's good to be here on the Sabbath, to fellowship together, to see old friends, familiar friends, long time gone away friends that need to move on back. It's good to see everybody. As we know, this is a very special weekend. Very special. Because this is a weekend of change. Anybody like change? What? Nobody likes change, okay. Progressive change. Good change. We like that kind. It's a time to embrace something new while remembering and appreciating the past. Maybe a little nostalgia, perhaps. It is a time of change. But it's a time that we can all celebrate, look forward to new memories, and creating new memories and new experiences into the future. I am, of course, referring to the wedding tomorrow of Raymond and his beautiful bride, Lindsay. You all thought I was talking about the pews in the church. <laughs> Sorry. The title of the message should have given it away a little bit. But that new young couple will be forging a new life together, a new beginning, an act, an ancient act, an ancient tradition as old as mankind itself. And, of course, we wish nothing but blessings and God's grace and mercy on their life together. Renee also reminded me that uh, Monday, this is Monday, right, of this week, is the wedding anniversary of my brother and sister-in-law, Trevor and Chrissy. Twelve years of marriage already, old married couple. I asked them to watch. They're not here today. Uh, well, they're not here right now, but they may be watching online. It seems like yesterday that we were gathered in this room right here. And uh, Trevor and myself and Pastor Gregory, I think we were all in there. I don't remember anybody else being in there. Nervously waiting for the knock, the knock on the door. The bride has made herself ready, and the service is about to begin. And I remember that Trevor had given me, and I meant to bring it today, he had given me this decorative flask, whiskey flask, as a thank you for my you know, best man duties. And um, it was loaded. <laughs> and I had it with me in there. And we were joking, and we were just fooling around, thinking, you know, just waiting. And 
Ah, maybe we should take some. Well, Trevor and I weren't going to do that, but fortunately, uh, the officiating minister led the way. So, I mean, what are you to do? You can't let your minister drink alone, right? <laughs> so, we all took a little snort. But it's a good memory. So, it really does seem like yesterday. And even more so for myself when I was in that room. And how many others have in this building, in that room, waited for the knock? that the bride has made herself ready. It's an uh, interesting kind of group. I call it the Brotherhood of the Pastor's Study, <laughs> as we wait for that knock. As I mentioned before, marriage tradition is as old as mankind itself. But it is actually older than that. The marriage ceremony was not instituted with mankind. It was instituted in the mind, the heart of God, of Christ himself, formulated within him. From the very beginning, it was forged in sacrifice and death. What? The wedding ceremony was forged in sacrifice and death. Let me show you what I mean. In Revelation 13 and verse 8, it says that the Lamb of God, Christ, was slain from the foundation of the world. And then Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as the lamb without blemish and without spot, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Think about that for a minute. Is this just poetic license? Is it just hyperbole? What is the scriptures telling us here? Is it just poetic, or was his fate as a savior actually fixed before the foundation of the earth itself, before man was ever created on the earth? I think sometimes we tend to forget, don't we, that sin existed before we did. We were not the first sinners. If you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel, we, we find that he is, Ezekiel is told to take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre. Now, there was an actual city of Tyre, as we know, north of Gaza and Samaria. It was a great port city, a great trading city. It had kings, many kings. It was a great city for many hundreds of years. It was conquered at one point by Alexander the Great. So Ezekiel is told to take up this lamentation. <clears throat> and he says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say unto him, 
Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty, no, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis and the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Sin, lawlessness, what a beautiful creature. And then sin and iniquity was found in him. This, of course, was not referring to any king of Tyre in the physical sense. This wasn't a man. There's no king of Tyre walked on the mountain of God between the fiery stones. It, of course, is referring to Satan, who was a beautiful creature. And yet he became the first to have iniquity, to have lawlessness and sin. By all accounts, he was the first with pride and self-aggrandizement, defiance towards God. Iniquity was found in him, and he was fallen. Sin existed in this creation, seemingly before mankind was ever created. Now, I don't know for sure, but there's, you know, there seems to be some indications that something happened. Not just, well, it couldn't have happened in the hearts and the minds of men yet, but something happened in this creation that caused a chain of events that ultimately, of course, led to our own temptation. Don't get me wrong. I do not believe that Christ was slain for the foundations of the earth for Satan. There is nothing to that. He saved us by his sacrifice. But by all accounts, Scripture, from Scripture, we know that the, these individuals, Satan and his minions, are already judged. They are already going to the lake of fire. But we can thank God, can we not, that we do have a Savior, that we are redeemed. Still, I wonder, and maybe you have too, why is it, why was it, that if Satan had sinned before man was created, why did God destroy him then? Why didn't he just destroy him then, before he made us? Why did he go on and proceed to create mankind in a world that was already fallen and already had wickedness and darkness in it? I don't have the answer. But we do get from scripture, don't we, that times that God himself allows himself to be under the same commandments, the same rules, the same structure 
that he lays down for others. He has times constrained himself, even though the outcomes have not been what he desired. Regretting that he has made man on the face of the earth being one of them. So God constrains himself at times. So perhaps this is why he still continued to create man in this realm. Like I said, we may not be able to answer all these questions, but we can be certain that our Savior was ordained to be our Savior from the foundation of the world. But what does all of this have to do with marriage? How does this come back to our central message today? As I mentioned before, I believe the institution of marriage was born out of the sacrifice and death of God himself. All of this is depicted in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the earth, of the field, and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave the names to cattle, and to birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she is taken out of man. This is a very familiar passage. We would probably be read tomorrow. Very familiar passage. We've heard it so many times in so many different messages and weddings. But I want to take another look at it, because it just struck me the other day when I was reading this passage. I'd never seen something in here before, and I was surprised at that. At this point, when God makes mankind, and I'm being very specific here, because remember, Adam was a man, but he wasn't a mankind. He was a single individual. If a tree fell on him at night, he was gone. There was nobody to follow after him. He had no children. He had no heirs. He was a single individual. So this creative process of making mankind had not started and finished with Adam. So at this point, when God takes this part of Adam's flesh, he is now creating mankind. At that very instant, when Adam went from being a unique, isolated, single entity to becoming a family, a race of people, at the same moment, God shows us the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. Did you recognize that? 
Adam was a type, an, an image, a symbol for Christ. See, in verse 21, when it says that God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, the Hebrew word is tadamah. And that means to deep sleep or sound sleep. And it, it, it itself is derived from the root word radam, which means to fall into a heavy sleep or to be cast into dead sleep. Dead sleep. How many of you have ever had invasive surgery? Were you awake? No. I want to be well under the threshold of any consciousness whatsoever. Well, this is a very similar thing to what happened to Adam. He was in surgery. And, you know, it took, unfortunately for us, 6,000 years to discover what God used on Adam. But finally, you know, we, we can put somebody under and do surgery. But in that condition, when you are that unconscious, the machine is breathing for you. If it stops, you're gone. It's as close to death as possible without actually dying. It is, in one sense, a controlled death. So we can see that the imagery here, the typology of the death of Christ in Adam. In this state of unconsciousness, Adam represented being dead. Adam symbolically died, unconscious, unaware of the passage of time, and God drew out of Adam from his flesh that part that he would form into the woman, his bride. From the foundation of the earth, Jesus was ordained to be sacrificed. And from the foundation of mankind, Jesus showed us the manner in which he would not only save us, but make us after his own kind. God, of, God could have formed the woman out of the same dirt that he formed the man. He could have done that. But he didn't. This very process of creating woman from the man was showing Christ slain from the beginning. That Jesus even more literally than Adam, would have had to die so that he could form from his own body, from his own life force, from his own self, a bride that he could dwell with throughout the ages. To me, it's just beautiful poetry. It's remarkable poetry. It's not by accident. And the poetry didn't come later. This was the ingenious mind of God, not only creating man, but at the very same moment, changing the Godhead itself, changing the divine nature. Do you realize that? Because he was setting up through this imagery and through what Christ would accomplish, a family in the, in the family of God. Incredible poetry. And Eve, as Eve was flesh of Adam's flesh, so we, the church, are the spirit of Jesus' spirit. So then, whether we are sons or daughters, we are collectively, or collectively, the bride of Christ, 
We are completely made of him. We are formed from him in every way. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural and afterward the spiritual. And the first man was of the earth made of dust and the second man is, a, is the Lord from heaven. As was the first man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so those who are, are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the, dust, the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Just reminds me that that scripture where it says that Christ will be in all Everything centers around him. That he was both the man and then the offspring of his body was also the woman, the bride, the church. He is that complete person. And we are nothing without him. We are born of him in every way possible. And all of that, of course, portrayed through the creative process of Adam and Eve. We don't often look at it this way, but <clears throat> when a young man and a young woman, or an older man or an older woman, for that matter, decide to get married, there are sacrifices made, aren't there? We don't really look at it in the sense of, you know, oh, the pain, but there are sacrifices. And uh, maybe some sacrifices are uh, unknown at the time, shall we say. But there are sacrifices made willingly. For the groom, he may be sacrificing autonomy, dedicating himself to the service of his bride. Not in protest, not unwillingly. Nobody's making him do this but he is sacrificing. It is a choice. Because he desires his bride more than the pleasures of a single man's life. He can't just do what he wants when he wants. He needs to consider his bride, her needs. He has to put her needs ahead of his own. Sometimes the demands she places on him are also not without sacrifice. Sometimes he will have to endure hardship or pain for his bride, work long days to provide for her and their children. He might have to put himself in danger to protect her. He will have to tend to her when, he, when she is sick, counsel her when she mourns. All of these things and more a groom, a husband will have to do. And a good, godly man does all of these things. 
without complaint because he loves his bride and counts her cherished above anything else and above anyone else. Likewise, the bride makes tremendous sacrifices for her husband. She commits to him her heart, her love, her time, her service. She is a counselor when he mourns. She is an advisor when he needs counsel. She tends to his needs, sometimes before he realized that he needed them. She sacrifices her own desires and makes her groom's desires her own. We, as the church, as the bride of Christ, well, he has sacrificed for us, hasn't he? As a groom, as his bride, he gave up his life. And then he continues to sacrifice He's not just waiting up there for us to join him. He's not just waiting up there to return. He is involved with us daily in our lives. Going through our life with us just as a groom, as a husband, travels through life with his bride. What should our response be as his bride? You know, it is easier, I think, for the ladies to consider Christ as a husband, as a groom. You know, as guys, we're, you know, hey, that's a little strange, right? Christ's our elder brother, he's, uh, he's our Lord and Master. But as the church, he is our groom. And so I think it's good for us men to consider what is it like? to be a bride? I asked my wife that question. And I, I suggest you guys ask your wives that question. You might get some surprising answers. I asked Renee that, what went through her mind on our wedding day? What is it like to be a bride? She said she had feelings of joy and love, but also of being chosen. Being chosen, she spoke of wanting to be beautiful and to be acceptable to me. Do we want to be beautiful and acceptable? Do we want to be radiant and glorious for our groom? Do we want to be presented as that bride of Christ in glory? In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as unto a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also are living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Are we acceptable? Are we that beautiful, acceptable bride of Christ? Dropping down to chapter 3. 
This is normally addressed to the wives, but let's address it to the church. He says, church, likewise, be submissive to Christ. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel or installing really spiffy new chairs in your sanctuary. Not just those things. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of gentle, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you are good, and are not afraid with any terror. Having that gentle, quiet, submissive spirit, just obeying our Lord and our Master, our Groom, we can only be acceptable to him, to our groom, by putting on his righteousness, by following his gentle guidance, by devoting ourselves to his needs, his desires. There is no room in this church for any other suitor. We are the bride of Christ. Only him will we love, honor, and obey. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said unto me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's make ourselves ready. Let's be acceptable on that wedding day.